Today, we hit part four of Foundation, the traders. The Foundation is extending its influence through shrewd commerce. And if things start to feel a little shady, remember, it's just business. This is Galaxy, a podcast about the sci-fi literary universe of Isaac Asimov. Welcome to Galaxy. I'm Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jacob Yunker. This is a podcast where we explore the sci-fi novels and stories of Isaac Asimov, and uh, we look at them for all of the themes and deep meanings and the relevance that they have for today. I am a seasoned reader of Isaac Asimov's material, and Jacob and Stephanie are pretty new to it. So together, we come together and discuss all of these things from different perspectives, and we tie it up in a bow and deliver it to you. So we just finished off with our last episode a very exciting story arc that we had been going with in the first three parts of Foundation. I have a question for you, though, Jacob and Stephanie. Have you ever seen the show Monty Python's Flying Circus? Yes. Yes. Okay. (laughs) So you know the part, kind of a recurring gag on the show, and if you don't know, if you've never seen this show, if you're listening, then you'll, you'll learn about it now, where the sketch is going on and, you know, it doesn't matter what the sketch actually was because at the end of the sketch, the camera suddenly slowly pans off to the side and we see John Cleese dressed in a suit sitting at a desk um, and then he says something. Do you remember what that is that he says? I don't remember now. No. He'll say, and now for something completely different. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes, I do I remember do. that actually. My goodness. Well, I feel I like uh I feel it's like fun. we have the Asimovian version. I don't know. I mean, like like I just said, but we finished off this amazing story arc that involves Salvor Hardin and his brilliant leadership of the foundation and saving the foundation from the threat of Anacreon, right? Right. And uh now we've got this. I mean, what is this? Uh, We have today part four of Foundation entitled The Traitors, and it is a much different animal than the two parts that we have been uh, talking about in our last two episodes, and um, um, a lot different from part one of Foundation, too. It has its own distinct character, and um, that can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. Before I read the synopsis, do you have first impressions that you want to share? I felt like we zoomed in and a hundred thousand times. Um, I definitely had to read the last two sections a couple times before I kind of understood what was going on because mm. it was so like, okay, here's the first part and then it's 50 years later and here's the next guy. And then suddenly I was like, okay, wait, how is this related to what I read last? Mm-hmm. And I've never been good at keeping track of names in books. Like, Okay, this is going to sound terrible. If I hadn't watched the Lord of the Rings movies, I wouldn't remember all of the different characters' names because there's just so many of them. And Tolkien just has this deep lore for each, you know, person. So, yeah, yeah, it's hard to keep that straight in my brain. Yeah, I mean, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Like the names, I mean, we thought the names were weird so far. I mean, the name weirdness has just kind of gone off the charts now. 
Um, yeah. but you it's know. not even helpful. Weird. Like right. some things are like, that's a weird name, but it sticks in your brain. Right. Yeah. These ones are just weird, weird. All right. So if it's been a while since you've read this section of foundation, or if you haven't read it yet, that's why we do a synopsis of it to kind of cover the material and kind of lay the foundation for what we're going to be talking about. Oh, no pun intended. I said foundation <laughs> <laughs> and it, I didn't really mean that. You're having a rough time here, Jason. I'm learning what? to live a little. <laughs> and and so I will quit just talking about the, the weirdness that I perceived of this story, and we'll dive right into our synopsis. Limar Ponyets is just trying to make his sales quota. He is a trader of high-tech foundation goods, and he goes from planet to planet in order to hawk his wares. But there's more to this than meets the eye. Ponyets and other traders like him are cogs in a larger foundation plan to extend its political influence to more and more worlds. Trade of highly advanced technology paves the way, with a little help from the foundation's religious construct, to be sure. But when Ponyets's shower on board his cramped ship is interrupted by an incoming transmission, he's in for an inconvenient crimp on his sales numbers. He's informed that a courier will soon arrive with a message for him from the Foundation. A traitor has been arrested in the planetary system of Ascone. Apparently, this traitor has been interfering with local politics, a violation of the trade code. Worse, Ascone is an area closed to the sale of any nuclear-based technology. They are firmly opposed to it. Ponyets tells the young courier that the traitor is a friend, and that despite the inconvenience, he can't say no to going to Ascone to get him released. In true plot exposition fashion, Ponyets then shares with the courier that he has had religious training within the Foundation's priesthood, although he didn't quite make the cut. What Ponyets keeps to himself is that the captive trader in question is actually Master Trader Eskel Gorov, a Foundation agent. After a lengthy process of working his way through several layers of Esconian government bureaucracy, Ponyets finds himself before the Esconian Grand Master. He is an old, suspicious man, and he rails about the incursion of Gorov into Esconian territory, and the quickly orchestrated, almost too convenient efforts to secure his release. Ponyets attempts to placate the Grand Master through apology and humility, but he remains unmoved. Gorov may likely be executed. Of course, he has also heard about how wealthy the Foundation is. Ponyets, taking the hint but not wanting to fall into a trap, counters that the Foundation's wealth comes through its technology. The Grand Master once again emphasizes that such is taboo in Escombe. The meeting returns to Gorov's execution, and Ponyets, seeing an opportunity, requests to see Gorov to offer him spiritual guidance in light of his impending journey to the Galactic Spirit. The Grand Master is taken by surprise and cautiously allows for a meeting between Ponyets and Gorov. The two speak in Gorov's cell, a field distorter on Ponyets' wrist masking their words. Gorov makes it known that the Grand Master is looking for gold and encourages Ponyets to head back to the Foundation and get some. But Ponyets wants more information so that he can know how to better deal with the Esconians. Gorov reminds Ponyets that the Foundation's current MO is to secure this region of the galaxy through a religion-controlled commercial empire. But Escone, however, already has its own beliefs, a system of ancestor worship, a part of which is to resist advanced technology. 
Gorov was sent by the Foundation to turn them on to nucleics. Clearly, he was unsuccessful. Ponyets decides to get creative in his attempt to free Gorov and maybe help the Foundation in its goal. He arranges for another audience with the Grand Master and his court, and this time he makes a demonstration of a transmuter, a device which he patched together over the course of a week that can transform iron into gold. He successfully transmutes a pair of buckles before the Grand Master's eyes. The reaction of the court is mixed. Furl, one of the Grand Master's counselors, objects the gold is produced from an unacceptable source. But Ponyets persuades the Grand Master that it can be acceptable, since it's not the transmuter that is being offered, but the gold, which can, after all, be used to adorn the shrines of Ascone's ancestors. He also offers to stay on Ascone for a full month while the purity of the gold is verified. This time period is really used by Ponyets to get a feel for the place and to see who he can potentially strike a deal with. His mark is Furl, the counselor mentioned a moment ago. Furl is suspicious about Ponyets, but he has a dilemma of his own. He wants one day to be Grand Master, but does not belong to one of the traditional Esconian tribes. He is bitter about this custom, and Ponyets sees another opportunity. Furl is not interested in nuclear-powered gadgets. He is not a true believing adherent to the Esconian faith, but he knows better than to risk the wrath of his people by secretly harboring forbidden technology. Ponyets, instead, offers the transmuter to Furl. And Furl is quite interested, as it could give him the means to become Grand Master. Furl is shrewd, however, when Ponyets negotiates the price, in this case a cubic foot of wrought iron, Furl states that he will only pay one week after the transmuter has been in his possession. Ponyets protests, but Furl then forces the issue, saying that otherwise he will turn Ponyets in for attempting to sell his goods. Ponyets agrees. The story cuts suddenly to both Ponyets and Gorov on their respective ships. Gorov has been released after a month, paid for by the gold of the transmuter. Meanwhile, Ponyets explains how his plan has worked out. Ponyets set up the transmuter for Furl and instructed him in its use. But he did something else while he was at it. He installed a hollow image recording device inside, something which neither Furl nor any Esconian could identify. In that way, Ponyets acquired high-definition footage of Furl operating the forbidden device, ready to be exposed if Furl did not cooperate with him. He has clearly proven himself to be the more shrewd of the two. At Ponyance's mercy, in exchange for the transmuter, Furl agrees to buy every device on Ponyance's ship at double the regular price, and agrees to escort Ponyance and Gorov to his mining estate on the outskirts of the system, where Ponyance will load his ship with tin. As for Furl, he gets to keep the transmuter and will be able to produce enough gold to buy the Grand Mastery, although probably not much more than that. The device works, but it won't indefinitely and he'll probably find a way to make some money off of all the gadgets he was forced to buy, paving the way for the acceptance of nucleics in a scone. In this way, he has both freed Gorov and helped the Foundation in its long-range goals. Okay, so um, if you recall, part three that we talked about in our previous episode was written, well, I should say it was published in June 1942. This part, which was originally entitled The Wedge, 
was published in Astounding Science Fiction in October 1944. So there's like a two-year gap, whereas the other um, two parts, parts two and three, were written pretty well back-to-back. And I think it kind of shows, you know? Like, there's a high level of continuity between parts two and three, and now, two years later, we have a part that is like very, very off the beaten path from that whole thing that we just have been talking about. I mean, one of the things that I think about when we talk about the narrative universe of all of Asimov's stories and how this particular part informs that, one of the things that I ask is like, okay, so what's going on here? And I think this qu- this time I ask with even more energy, like, what is going on here? Like, it's what highly disconnected. There is a significant loss of the overarching thrust that had been established. Where's the momentum? I just feel like it's, it just plays so differently. There's no real mention of the Selden plan. There's no Selden crisis. Like, that's kind of, that seemed like it was kind of shaping up to be the way that the book would unfold. What's the next Selden crisis, right? That has to be one of the most difficult parts of writing a short story fix-up is losing that momentum and having to go back and start over again with, this is the beginning of the story and we're rising into Mm, action. And on the other side, when just talking about style, this part reminds me much more of an independent short story, you know, like way more in the sense of... It really brings out the sense of the short story fix-up, as you just mentioned. Way more like a, a story from iRobot. It's it's actually a lot shorter. It's the shortest part of any of them. It's only 20 pages long. So, yeah. I mean, ironically, it's very short for, I think, how kind of complex and convoluted the plot is. It's also a very discreet plot that's not very dependent upon the other material, it almost feels like you could substitute out certain phrases and ideas. Like if you were just to substitute those out of the story, it would work just like fine on its own. Like it could just be a, a non-foundation story that got published in a sci-fi magazine, you know? Yeah. No, I definitely, I I also feel all those things. So I had to go back and listen to it a second time. And I think the only thing that kind of feels like it's tied in is the end of part three saying like, go out and sees the universe dot 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 yeah that's true well here's one of the weird ways they started doing that right but that's that's all it feels like i feel i really do feel like part four we only got half the first half of it (laughs) it felt like there was a second half coming yeah i mean and i think that for that reason i i kind of consider it up to this point the weakest uh, component of foundation that we've read so far. I feel like everything else so far has been really pretty strong. And I feel like this one just kind of, for me, falls a little flat. Yeah, I'd probably tend to agree with you. Although the um, the little Encyclopedia Galactica entry at the beginning of this, it is pretty creative. It yeah. kind of it kind of papers over that that weakness, I think, by saying, there are all these stories about traders who are going around and, you know, engaging in, in all these daring activities to help further the foundation. And probably a lot of them are apocryphal and it's hard to tell which ones are true and which ones are false and all this stuff. And I don't know, I, I, I kind of want to view this, this part of foundation in my head canon, finishing up the story and then seeing the the little kid who's sitting in the candy shop on Terminus, 
like closing up the sci-fi magazine and putting it back on the rack because you know it's a fun yarn um and it's and it's a and it's a kooky little adventure story so that's how i'm gonna view it you know like (laughs) like it doesn't even have to be a real part of the narrative universe it could just be like a little fictitious corner tucked away on a on a magazine rack somewhere well i i don't know yeah i mostly agree with you but also i think if if we're reading into asimov's you know the last chunk the last chunk of the story we talked about religion as power i think in this chunk we can talk about trade as power which we'll get to later yeah absolutely but um there is this continuing movement of celadon crises and we gotta make adjustments about how we're gonna keep things on track so i think that deeper story is there but you're right it is mostly it does mostly feel off topic yeah it's kind of like a day in the life of your average joe not the salvor hardens of the foundation universe but like here's just you know something that a regular guy has to go take care of yeah i i think i actually appreciate the day in the life of a regular Joe as part of the larger story because it helps I don't know it felt it helps me feel like I can put teeth on what it looked like for the foundation to spread influence yeah sure and I really appreciate that but I also really feel the fact it was only 20 pages long yeah and only one Joe and with what seems like very little repercussions right yeah and and I think you're right one of the things I was thinking about I think there's something to be said about the fact that not every story has to be about the most exciting thing that ever happened to the foundation ever, you know, like it does, the stakes don't always have to be that high. Yeah. And that in its own way, stakes that high get boring and just ridiculous and can potentially become ridiculous. My guilty pleasure is a TV show called Dragon Ball Z and it's a guilty pleasure because it, falls right into that trap of if everything's always at the highest stakes all the time, you have to go to re- just the weirdest places of plot to make it still entertaining. Right. I think it's actually interesting talking about the difference between Harden and then this trader dude. Uh, one of the questions I actually wanted to ask that we didn't get to in the last section was this idea of control over a situation and the foundation having control over their universe. And, you know, the whole point of the foundation is to stop the barbarism after a thousand years. So it's to bring about this new empire. And I wanted to ask, how can that be dependent on one person all the time? But I think by showing that an average Joe just a random dude can also influence the course of psychohistory is showing that it's not just dependent on the movements of leaders. It's dependent on normal people doing normal things that also helps to uh, curb the thousand years. Yeah. If you want the masses changed, you can't because leaders are only individuals as great as they are. They're only individuals. If you want the masses changed, eventually the masses are going to have to be active participants in their own changing because the kind of changing that we're talking about the great stagnation was brought up in previous chapters um is is really deep and and by a deep problem i mean like there's so many layers of person personality psychology history even 
Um, like you, you don't tackle that. You don't fix that with just leaders. Like every individual has to adjust. Jason, I'm actually really glad that you brought this up because I hadn't thought of the main character of this story as an average Joe until you said that. And one of my main complaints about Foundation was going to be, why is it just one person that is continuing to affect the outcome when it is such a vast empire? When it is such a vast galaxy. So I was I was really wrestling with that. But you brought up that this is an ordinary guy. So it makes sense then that that individuals would have to make changes as well. That they'd all affect the course of history together. It wouldn't be just one person solving a crisis at a time. Yeah, totally. About um, I can just imagine Limar Ponyitz seeing the uh, poster with Salvor Hardin dressed up like Uncle Sam pointing at, you know, pointing at him saying, I want you to be a traitor. Uh, and so, yes, he's he's one person in the midst of a whole system that ultimately has been guided by one person, that person being Harry Selden. But it's not just one person who can get it done. So I have a theme that I want to talk about, and it's really the only one that really popped out at me. And that was the theme of the bending of the rules. There's this big distinction that gets made between the systems of belief and value that we adhere to and the times when, for whatever reason, we decide that, eh, I can fudge just a little bit this time. There's a lot of that going on. Did you see that? Yeah, I think so. It's um, like the rules aren't set up to always have the best in mind individuals it seems like they are in general helpful but like there's no rule set that's rules are proverbial wisdom yeah thank you yeah but uh, to give some examples i mean obviously the esconians we see plenty of people who are bending the rules the grand master who sees the gold and sees the machine that made the gold he probably by all rights should not accept the gold because it's coming from this technology that they consider to be totally taboo. But Ponyet's very cleverly worms his way around and kind of makes justifications to say like, hey, it's just, you know, like you don't have to think about the source. Like I think he says um, a flower, a beautiful flower can grow out of the mud, right? And as soon as Ponyet's also throws in the idea that he can, that the Grand Master can adorn the shrines of the ancestors with the gold, suddenly the Grand Master is, he's sold. Like, he is convinced that that this time he can do this, and it doesn't really matter. And really, the Grand Master's whole scheme with essentially wanting payment for, for Gorov as a hostage that's kind of a bending of the rules too, because like, as he says in the beginning of the story, you know, everyone gets treated the same. If they break these rules, they're going to get death by a gas chamber, everyone from the highest person to the lowest person. And, but really under the surface, he's really just trying to get gold. And so the money is convincing him like, eh, I can kind of fudge this and kind of work my way around it. Then we have Furl, who is the councilman, the Grand Master's right hand, who 
he wants the grand mastership. And so he's willing to compromise on this belief system in order to get the gold necessary to get the grand mastership. I mean, it's like he's undercutting the very system that he wants to be at the top of by breaking its own rules. And even the foundation is breaking, is bending some rules because they are, you know, they they say like, okay, well, we're not supposed to trade in this restricted area, but we're really going to actually try to trade in this restricted area. It's like yeah. everyone is is finding the way to skirt around the the strictures that have been set up and kind of work their way around it. It's an interesting motif that repeats itself throughout this story. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like the flip-flop of the previous part where in the previous section, what the power that kind of resided in the priests and in the masses was, hey, we have this religious law that nobody breaks, not even our prince regent, you know? And now we flopped all the way over to saying, eh, rules, as long as you make the trade. Because commerce is now the power, right? We only use rules as a way of leveraging commerce against one another. It almost seems like the only person who doesn't really bend many rules is Limar Ponyets himself, you know? Like, he, he kind of plays it by the book, except for when Furl tries to con him. You know, when Furl makes his move, his power play to try to turn the situation to his hand, Ponyets is ready for it. He he kind of just has his own counter move that ends Furl's plans. And so, I mean, he's ruthless, but it's like it's not as though he's ever advertised himself as any different. Like he needs to make his quota and he needs to make his sales. He's like really kind of brash. And yeah, just kind of just kind of ruthless in his ways, but it's not like he's ever presented in any other in any other light. So it's fascinating that he's a, he's the one at the center of the story. Yeah, I think it's interesting that as soon as things are kind of established, they get kind of thrown out. They're d- they're doing things dif- differently. They're breaking rules that earlier they wouldn't have broken when they were first established. And I guess that kind of demonstrates some of the power of this whole idea that the foundation is going for, that really what causes people to compromise on their systems of ethics and systems of beliefs, in all of these cases, it's money. It's the pursuit of of trade and and the acquisition of wealth. When I say acquisition of wealth, I can't help but think of like the Ferengi from Star Trek. (laughs) And honestly, the Grand Master, who is this shriveled up old guy with a fur collar around him, you know, sitting in his chair, I couldn't help but think about the Grand Nagus from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So, yes, it um, is a very, you know, Ferengi type interaction where you kind of got to outsmart them with their own, uh, the own way that they break their rules and lie and cheat and steal. You got to trick them. Right. And it's seen as virtuous. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Those episodes drive me nuts. All right. Well, um, I think I have enough like ethical like grime covering me from all of the rule bending that's been going on. <laughs> so we're going to take a break and I'm going to come back fresh and ready to go to talk about more of this part of Foundation.
Hey, while we're taking a little break from our discussion, I wanted to take a moment and give some shout outs to some people who have reached out to us and commented recently, both from longstanding listeners and new listeners as well. Uh, As far as the former goes, we have a message from Marcus Miles, who has been a long listener to Galaxy ever since we started. So I want to thank you, Marcus, for listening. And he commented on our episode about part three of Foundation where we talked about the use of Foundation's religious system that is developed in the story and how that could be a reflection of Asimov's own thoughts about organized religion. And perhaps he had seen what sorts of damage organized religion has the potential to do. Uh, Perhaps he had seen that in his life and that had maybe impacted his writing. Marcus writes, Your comments on religion were great, But remember that Asimov's parents fled pre-revolutionary Russia, a land of orthodoxy-supported pogroms. And that is very true. We mentioned in our Asimov bio episode that Asimov's family hailed from a region in Russia that would have been known as the Pale of Settlement, a place where Jewish people were allowed to settle but not outside of it. And so, yes... Asimov, in his family history, he was no stranger to the idea of persecution. And so that's an interesting point to bring up. So once again, thanks, Marcus, for listening, and we hope that you continue to enjoy the podcast as it develops. We also got an email from Joel McKinnon, and he wrote about an aspect of psychohistory that we hadn't really thought of and that he brought to light. And he writes, I don't think anybody mentioned Asimov's chemistry background. Knowing thermodynamics, he analogized psychohistory's ability to predict the future to knowing the aggregate state of a collection of molecules in a gas and the forces of heat and pressure placed on them that you can precisely predict the aggregate resulting state. Just substitute people for molecules, and we don't have nearly enough people yet. When we have nearly a quintillion to work with, that might change things. And that really is a very interesting point. My first reaction was actually kind of skeptical when I was thinking about, well, people aren't the same as molecules floating around in a gas. But then it's really true if you think about quintillions of people or a quintillion people, then you start to get to that level of statistics that becomes much more reasonable versus the actions and variables of individuals or small groups. So I was really appreciative of that. Thanks very much, Joel. Also, just so you know, listener, Joel McKinnon is actually working on his own Asimov-themed podcast. Uh, It's in development currently, and it's going to be called Selden Crisis. A little different from what we're doing here at Galaxy, but we figure the more the merrier with the variety of Asimov-related podcasts out there. So you can check out seldoncrisis.net. I'm not quite sure if it is up and running yet on that site, but just keep an eye out for it. And rest assured that when that podcast comes out, we will be sure to plug it here on Galaxy. So again, Joel, thanks for reaching out and thanks for sharing all of your thoughts on Asimov. That's all for Listener Mail for today, but please reach out to us, send us a message like Marcus did, or send us an email like Joel, and we would be happy to give you a shout-out here on the show. Are you looking for science fiction and comic book news without a whole lot of unnecessary spin? Then you're looking for Multiverse Tonight. 
Since 2018, Multiverse Tonight has covered the news about Star Trek, Star Wars, DC Comics, Marvel Comics, and anything else geek-related. We also have occasional interviews with creators and much, much more. That's Multiverse Tonight, hosted by me, Thomas Townley. Find it wherever you find podcasts or go to our website at multiversetonight.com. ready to talk about worldview stuff sure you said that you were feeling a little uh, grimy i don't think you're gonna get any cleaner in this section jason so big worldview concern i think in this section is trade and money as power well the fun i think i'm having a hard time like i think you're right money is power here i'm having a hard time as to understanding why because like in america i could see in in many parts of the world we live in um, money usually is a common agreed upon resource that gives you access to other resources right money is only useful if i can go spend it on something for me you know like i don't i don't mm-hmm. think money would be nearly as powerful in our history if at no point it was an agreed upon thing to get you what you wanted Right. If money right. didn't actually get you the four chickens you wanted, then there's no reason to have money. So I can see why money is power in, in our little circle. But I'm having a hard time going like back to this time and seeing like gold. I don't know. I feel like with so much world building that Isaac Asimov has done, like gold is sometimes not even like thought of as important, especially if it's not a thing on your planet. Why would you want it? You know, because we found out that some places don't even have metals. So like yeah. how is how what is the one thing throughout this whole galaxy we've all agreed upon to call money or a resource that we all use exchangeably? Is it really just gold? Because that's kind of I don't know. It's true because I mean in um, in the story it's even said between Ponyets and Gorov when Gorov says, "Well, they want gold," and Ponyet says, "Wait, why?" And Gorov says, well, it's their medium of exchange. Meanwhile, uh, Ponyets has already said that the wealth of the foundation comes from its technology. The value is in the goods that they produce in, in what they manufacture. And meanwhile, when Ponyets wants to load his ship up at the end of the story with something that he considers valuable, it's actually tin, which is like, okay, why why is tin important? He's going to load up his ship with all the tin that it can hold and some on on Gorov's ship as well. There's a whole slew of different things that people are finding valuable. And, and I think probably tin or iron, you know, those things are considered valuable on Terminus because it is a planet that lacks metals and they need natural resources by which to manufacture things. The gold is valuable as a medium of exchange, probably because it's been historically valuable uh to and many people shiny. to many peoples it's yes shiny. it's very shiny and the and the and the technology itself is valuable not so much a medium of exchange i mean it's a good that's produced and sold but it's valuable because the foundation uses it to further its larger objectives in the region and ultimately in the galaxy yeah and i would say that 
the ability to trade itself is the power. So that's why they're breaking in kind of to this new society is we need to be able to trade in order to have power over them. Because if we can figure out what they want, we can offer it and they will have to give us what we want. So that is the power. It's, you know, finding the lack. It's scarcity. It's finding the lack and offering something to fill that hole. Whether that's, you know, religion or whether that's trade, it's, it's, it's power over people who have uh, a, a scarcity. So I wanted to throw out this idea to you guys and kind of see what you think. Um, have you heard the expression, the invisible hand of the market? Yes. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Because we live in a capitalistic society. Ooh. So I just, I think it's interesting if we're pulling together the threads of the Celadon crises and we're supposed to be moving history in a particular way and we're doing that through trade. I don't know. I'm wondering about this idea that if we throw all of these forces together, then something good will come out of it. And I'm wondering, how does that affect psychohistory? A civilization. I think... I think the story the point is instead of 10,000 years of barbarism let's do 1,000 and if we can trade tools and we can trade technology then maybe we can speed up how long a planet is barbarous which I guess I'm still confused by too because all because you have the tools does not mean you know how to repair remake or do anything with them so it doesn't really save a barbarous planet from being barbarous, really, as much as it just kind of gives a barbarous planet new toys. I think your question is kind of operating on two different levels. Okay. You're talking about economics and capitalism as a force that will, because of the ways that people interact with one another and the desires that people have, the markets will just kind of end up sorting themselves out mm -hmm. because people will buy the goods that are useful and the goods that they want and that are in high demand. Demand will, you know, will be met by people who want to produce, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And my understanding when trying to integrate that with psychohistory is that that makes economics just one lever amongst many societal or civilizational levers, essentially, that can be pulled and, and used to manipulate societal situations. So the question is, if there are psychohistorical mathematical equations which somehow integrate economics and fold economic theory into predictions, then maybe that's how they kind of mesh together. I don't I don't really know. Obviously, Asimov didn't know how psychohistory worked. Um, so we can guess, but that's kind of my best guess. Yeah, I think that makes sense, Jason. Thank you for actually understanding a little bit more of what was going on in my brain than uh, I had figured out. Well, maybe I just read it into your thoughts. Kind of like reading all these things, all these meanings into Asimov's works when he never <laughs> meant them. Yeah. Jacob, you actually had an interesting thought that I think is a good segue into kind of an overview type worldview question that I have. So we keep, we've said a 
bunch of times different things about power in Asimov's novels. So I want to bring that conversation back up and just talk about it again. Why is there all of this need for control? And I just want to question his basic premise in Foundation. Why is it necessary to avert the, quote, barbarism? There's this assumption that this barbarism is going to be bad, that the society will somehow be worse off when, you know, maybe it's just a different development. Um, so as Moff said in the last episode, we had a, um, a wonderful listener uh, bring to our attention that Asimov himself has once said in an essay, or I think it was an essay, that, you know, I don't write with in the intention of a lot of different layers. To me, as uh, it tells me that if he's just kind of writing by the seat of his pants, this is good news for us because we're actually going to get seeds and veins of insight into Asimov's thinking because... You, you can't avoid your own subconscious and things like that. You can't. Right. Um, so if he's just writing from the seat of his pants, free association style, thank you, Freud, um, then I think we're seeing the theme of power and control over other things because maybe Asimov had a power control vein in himself. That oh, just boy. sounds like fear. We're psychologizing the dead. We should not do that. And my second thought before I forget, I think we see the, the, the power theme over and over because it's in Asimov's own head. But I also think we see this need for control because of Asimov's naturalistic and atheistic um, worldview that says if, like in science, like you have to control every variable when you do an experiment, when you do an observation. You have to control everything. That's the point. We even use the word control to mean normal. <laughs> the untouched one, control, you know? So I think we're going to be seeing um, a lot of control and power themes until the end of this universe of books. Um, I don't know. I my, mean, I, I, sorry, I, I, I said, here's my second thought and then finished my first. <laughs> my second thought was um, the, the avoidance, the, the, uh, we're making a value statement that says barbarism for 10,000 years is bad. And I think that's also because of Asimov's scientific naturalistic worldview. Because sleeping in mud huts is bad when you could be sleeping in a bed. And sleeping in a straw bed is bad when you, when you could be sleeping in a, on a really fine mattress. Now, okay. that, that's all so I'm trying to say So you're getting at the assumption that technology and progress make life better in some fundamental way. And then the step, the, the step of logic is then if life can be made more convenient, the value statement is that is good. Convenience is good. And technology, therefore, is a good. Or comfort is good. Comfort is good. Stability is good. Stability is good. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not sure that I completely disagree with that. I mean, I like to be comfortable. Well, I'm just trying to make an observation of how we ended up calling barbarism bad. Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting to call it barbarism as well. Yeah. We don't really see a whole lot of barbarism. I mean, like we hear that there have been wars between the four kingdoms and apparently they don't have the same technology that they used to anymore. 
Now, I do think that, you know, a little hint ahead, I do think that in the last part that we'll get into in our in our next episode, I think we will see a little bit more of what could be called barbarous situations and like just, um, yeah, just barbarity. But I, I do think that it is hard to to actually kind of pinpoint in these other parts where the barbarous quality actually has been. You know, when I think of a barbarians, I think of something moral reprehensibility and violent by nature, culture, you know, obviously the term barbarian has been used throughout history to mean a lot of different things, frequently just pointing at the people that you don't like or that you want to control. Um, so uh, my my description in my mind of barbarism is going to be somewhat unique to me, but that's kind of what I get this picture of. But like, ultimately, when you get down to it, is the average citizen of Anacreon just kind of moving about in their feudal existence an actual barbarian? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I think there's a difference between, you know, wanting to make life better for people, which, you know, can be considered a noble pursuit. And, you know, if we're preventing Mad Max type chaos <laughs> where, you know, if, if, if we're preventing really terrible, immoral things... That's probably a good thing, right? That's a good thing. But, you know, there's also this assumption that we're at whatever the next stage is, if we regress, there's this, you know, I don't know. I just think we're lifting up progress and lifting up technology in this chunk. Yeah, uh, yeah I get it. Much, I mean, like, you know, I mean, look at us now. I mean, we are one singular planet um, here in reality. We're the only planet that we know of that has intelligent life on it. And when you look at the whole of the planet, I mean, I guess when you look at the whole of human population and history, people's definitions of what has been barbarous or not, some people would say that humanity is pretty barbarous as it is, where some people would say that humanity is pretty um, pretty advanced relative to other time periods and other eras in history. It's It's kind of a complicated question. Yeah, and I think there are good things and there are bad things about different societies. So there can be good things about societies that have no technology and, uh, you know, are still uh, hunter-gathering or, and things like that. And there can be bad things about that society as well as, you know, the most quote-unquote advanced societies can have good things and bad things. And sometimes, really, the technology does the bad things, you know? A hunter-gatherer society is not going to drop a nuclear bomb. You know, yeah. there's a little yeah, bit very of true. assumption um, there. Yeah, scientific worldviews have been used for great atrocities and great good at the same time. So I think there's an assumed worldview that progress is a moral good. And that's the, in the last episode, you were talking about that science has a step, a, a leap of faith in its worldview, too. And I think this is right. one of them. Yeah. And also, I want to say, too, that it's that assumed moral good of progress and stability on the galactic scale that allows the foundation to be justified in its whole trade push, quasi-religious, quasi-trade uh, push of expansion. And it's so, it you know, that that's fascinating because, like, that same tool can be used for horrible things 
in the same way that could be used for good things, too. Yeah, it's an ethical reasoning that I'm not sure that I would hop on board with. It's a little bit of an end justifies the means kind of ethical reasoning. Which actually, Especially as everybody's bending the rules all the time. Yes. yes. Which actually brings me to the last thing that I want to bring up, which is uh, this dependence on people to make the quote-unquote right future come about. And I want to question that premise because I'm not sure that there is actually a right path given Asimov's worldview. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you are going to throw out a telos and the word telos just means an end, it's like Greek or something like that. Thank you. I needed that. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) If you're going to throw out the idea that there is some ultimate goal then what's the right path? Why does it matter? You know, why are you fighting so hard if there is no actual goal? And maybe the goal is just to love and protect as many human beings as possible. And, you know, that's a reasonable goal. But how do you know that that is the right path? Or why does psychohistory get to decide there is a right path and what that right path is? Yeah, was it our second episode of of foundation um i was kind of talking about like hey there's an appeal to authority here um and the doctor of psycho history was the appeal to authority for a long time and and kind of in a way kind of still is at this part of the book but that's the appeal to authority that i think is the telos that you're talking about the the means to the end they're appealing to a smarter psycho historian oh he told us that 10,000 years of barbarism is bad and 1,000 barbar- years of barbarism is good, so we're going to listen to him. Yeah, but why do you have to listen to him? Exactly. You don't have to listen to yeah. him. Because it's still a step of going from science to philosophy. Um, yeah, and when you get down to it, if your position is is full-out naturalism, then, I mean, that really does kind of start to poke at the question of really why anything why does much of anything actually matter as far as the end that you're going for? If I mean, I mean, if flat out naturalism implies things like the lack of meaning, lack of significance for things, you know, I mean, it's all just matter. The neglect of ideas of things like spirituality or soul or, or things like that, then really it is true. Like, what what goal is any different from any other goal? Are, are you saying, Stephanie, that Asimov is bending the rules on his own worldview by exploring this uh, by exploring this whole concept? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say that. I think Asimov himself does question this premise of a right path a little bit in, I think, the next story. No spoilers. I haven't read it yet. I'm sorry. Dang but, it. <laughs> but... Yeah, I think he is. It's it's at least it's not internally consistent. But, you know, I, I think that um, when it gets down to it, I think one of the messages of this whole story, I mean, message, I don't know. But one thing that seems to kind of evoke in my mind is the idea that everyone kind of ends up bending the rules at some point. Sometimes we end up going around things that we kind of hold to mentally um, as constructs in our minds because of the needs of a particular situation. I'm not saying that that's always a good thing or a right thing to do. I just think it's kind of like human nature for us, that sometimes 
we kind of have to skirt around uncomfortable aspects of of the systems that we're that we're um, existing in, and that can operate on the levels of worldview consistency. Like sometimes there's a part of our worldview that isn't comfortable, and we kind of end up kind of scooting around it. Mm. Sometimes people end up bending the rules in order to get things done for the needs of a moment. Yeah, we can't handle the cognitive dissonance. Yeah, and we can see examples of that. Or, you know, instead of saying we and making big statements, I I can easily see examples of this in the science community because there are there are uncomfortable scientific truths that are just pretty solid. They they just make one uncomfortable. Um because if we ha- we live in a society that, especially for scientists that say, "Hey, um, lean a little bit more left, but sometimes you come across a scientific fact that tends to support a right-leaning path, and that makes a lot of scientists uncomfortable, so they ignore it, and vice versa. We have a lot of, in America, right-leaning people who don't want to listen to science at all because um, there's a couple of facts that do kind of lean to supporting the left. Now, science as a whole does not actually do doesn't really lean either way. It doesn't lean. It's just, it's an observation of things. When you say right and left, are you talking politically? I'm talking politically in America. Sorry. <laughs> um, so when, yeah, scientists are asked to lean politically left in America just because that's the, that's the waters they swim in. Um, and a lot of people don't like that who are, who find themselves uh, politically right. They don't like to listen to a lot of science for, for that reason, because they don't feel represented and, and you know what? There's there's places in science for both because it's not political. It's just science. But that we scoot around our own worldviews. We scoot around our own. Yeah, it's it's not fun. Well, it looks like that is about all that we can say about this particular story today. So we are going to finish up, and um, we hope that you've enjoyed the episode. And before we get into our huge spiel. At the end of that, we do at the end of every episode about how you can get into contact with us. I also just want to thank you for listening. If you've subscribed to the podcast, I want to thank you for having done that. And I also just wanted to urge you if you feel like this podcast has been valuable, then and if you feel like it's something that other people would want to talk about, then just take a moment and and tell someone you know, you know, tell a friend and introduce them to the podcast too, because we'd love to expand our audience, and um, we'd love for you to be a part of that. And also, if you feel so inclined, you know, leave us a leave us a review, leave us a rating. I mean, you hear about that all the time on different podcasts, leave us a rating or a review. I mean, to be to be clear, it doesn't really necessarily help us to get more uh, to get more exposure. I mean, it's social credit. But if you feel like you have enjoyed this podcast and found it valuable, then Leave a rating and a review for us and let someone else who's searching for a podcast know what you think. Also, if you're interested in any of these kind of ideas that we talk about and you want to see where we come up with talking about some of the religious things or the history things, feel free to shoot us an email and uh, we can point you to some resources. You can email us at contact at galaxypodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook at Galaxy Podcast. And you can head to our website, which is galaxypodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there uh, to stream for free. And you can also find several links 
to our podcast on various podcasting apps such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, a whole slew of them. So if you head there, you can do all of those things. You can also learn a little bit more about us and get a link to that email if you want to send us one. So again, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jacob Yunker. And this has been Galaxy. Thank you.